We could do this a couple different ways. Um, we can actually make this very informal um, because you all have all sorts of expertise and, and we can make it more conversational. I have a few comments, some of which you heard variations of probably last night. And then I was going to end a little bit by talking about the projects that we're working on and finding a way to connect them. But we can also turn that upside down. Um, so um, kind of very generally, there are a couple different kinds of public humanities projects that we've been doing at the Center for the Humanities. The center that I run started um, in 1999, so late 90s. It was actually, and I know that at Georgetown there's some conversation about starting a humanities center. It was actually the second humanities center at UW-Madison. There's also an institute for research in the humanities, which was really the first humanities center, um, much more on an institute for advanced studies model, the first humanities center in the country. Um, it, it's now about 55 years old, and um, it really had the advantages and disadvantages of an Institute for Advanced Study, which is scholars went there sometimes when it initiated, um, went there for life, uh, um, to, to work on their research. And so when there was the Humanity Center movement, if we want to call it something like that, in the 90s, where people were thinking about interdisciplinarity um, in particular, faculty and graduate students wanted to um, expand their, their research and, the, the, and multiply their connections um, within the university and also as, and partly related to the kind of turn to theory um, and interdisciplinary, to think beyond the university. So think about partnerships and relationships outside of the university. The center that I run uh, was inaugurated with really that double mission of being more of a public humanities project and an interdisciplinarity project. So, over the years, that's taken a number of shapes, and what public humanities means has taken on um, a number of different definitions. So um, it's meant, and both the humanities and public humanities, um, have meant lecture series. So at many places, when people thought about um, the public humanities, it meant how do we connect out of the university? How do we create conversations out of the university? But um, from pretty early on um, in the, mid-2000s, um, maybe even a bit before, but let's say the mid-2000s, um, my center, even before I was director, was very interested in thinking um, about projects, about engaging graduate students um, in collaborative projects with community partners. And then building on that foundation, we started a larger scale public humanities initiative funded by uh, the AW, the Andrew uh, W. Mellon Foundation, in um, 2013 that really um, focused, we call, it's called Engaging the Humanities, that focused on a couple um, key areas. One is a public humanities certificate for graduate students. Um, so to think about and um, design a form of uh, certification or education in the public humanities uh, um, that would work across humanities disciplines and sometimes even slightly outside or in adjacent disciplines, um, School of Education or some social science departments. And then the Public Fellows Program, which I talked a little bit about last night, which is modeled, for those of you who know, the ACLS um, postdoc program. The idea behind the Public Fellows was to think about how the kind of work that involves something like internships or positions for graduate students outside of academia how that could, or I should say positions outside of academia, how that could be part of graduate 
life, how that could be part of a graduate student's experience rather than something that she um, comes to after getting the PhD. So the ACLS model, which has been a game changer in many ways, um, focuses on a two-year postdoc, post-PhD. Post but the question that I had and kind of worked out in relationship to, uh, in relationship with the Mellon Foundation was, what if we made this part of graduate education? And at um, a big R1 public university, our students are TAing constantly. So even if they have fellowship years on the front and back end, the midsection in an English department or history department involves lots and lots of TA-ship. And not that students shouldn't have lots of classroom experience, but was there a disconnect between the amount of teaching labor we were asking of our students and the kinds of alternative careers they were interested in. So um, we've now had 29 fellows. Um, we just recruited our uh, most recent cohort, so that brings us up to about 36 or 35 uh, fellows. Um, we do five, six, one or two cases, I think we've done seven a year. Uh, um, the idea behind the fellowships, um, and it's very much modeled after ACLS, is their half-time, so 50% uh, um, positions, either nine-month academic year or a couple of them are full-year positions where we um, place students in organizations in and around Madison where they're working on a project, or, um, getting mentorship, oftentimes learning new skills, but also bringing skills that they have and sometimes don't even know that they have uh, um, into a non-academic workplace. So to give you some examples of where students have been placed, and this is all on our website if you're interested. Um, so the first year we had five fellows, and one was at the radio show to the best of our knowledge, which you might know because it's nationally syndicated, but it's uh, recorded in Madison. So we had a uh, graduate student in English, uh, work there as, um, it might have been called a digital producer or something like that, but she worked, learned, learned the trade of radio, thought a lot about um, translating, and it's a very academic um, radio show. They'll often interview people that will bring in to campus. They'll interview Tony Grafton or they'll interview uh, um, Alain Badiou or who knows who. But, um, but, so she worked on that show. We had um, one student who was getting a PhD in ethnomusicology, writing a dissertation on the theremin, um, she had a job at the Madison Public Library. They had just built a brand new building, had a very new mission to be more of a third space, um, a space for the homeless, a space, a maker space. Uh, um, and she was involved in a project there setting up um, a digital platform for the circulation of local music. And so she researched copyright, she worked with local bands, she worked with the tech side of things. And hers is our um, biggest success story. I mentioned this last night where that project led to a startup uh, um, and she became the CEO of the startup producing this platform that then can be used by libraries across the country to circulate local music. So that was our PhD turned CEO in two years story. Um, we had a project at the Madison Children's Museum, um, thinking about how the museum could connect with um, underrepresented populations um, and 
tell the story of um, children in Madison in a different way. So it ultimately led to a digital project that was a day in the life of a child in Madison that a PhD in the history of science coordinated. She was writing a dissertation on the history of canned foods. So part of the reason I'm describing the dissertations is that they don't necessarily or obviously lead to the project, um, but they were all really fascinating dissertations. Um, the, to the best of our knowledge, dissertation was on AIDS testimony and testimony after September 11th. Um, and then in the first year, we had two fellows that worked at the Center for the Humanities running a project that we coordinate for high school students and teachers across the state of Wisconsin called Great World Texts in Wisconsin. And that program is focused on helping and developing a curriculum for teachers at a range of different schools from low-income inner city schools to rural schools to high-end suburban schools, um, uh, helping them teach a book um, that they typically find too challenging to incorporate into a high school classroom. So in our first year, that was Orhan Pamuk's Snow. And then we have a year-long program for teachers and students. We bring the students for this major conference, and then in that case, we brought Pamuk as the keynote for the high school students and um, had a day of high school students in Orhan Pamuk. So, um, so that was the first year. Um, we then kind of branched out and we've had, and, and I should say, in some cases, we typically don't have repeats, but some of them have, have led to new collaborations. Um, we then branched out and have had um, fellows. This year we just um, are placing fellows at a project called Race to Equity, where um, they're trying to track Native American experience uh, in, in Madison. They've, their work to date has been primarily on African American and Latino um, um, populations, but they now want to think about Native American um, populations in Madison. Um, the Office of Patient Relations at the University Hospital, so there's a grad student in English who's really interested in medical humanities, and they're doing kind of advocacy work. It's often the case that um, when the, the University Hospital wants to involve different patient voices, um, learn from patients on how to better provide their services, but they've mostly had a very narrow band of patients who have been able to contribute to this, those who can drive to the hospital in the middle of the day or get to um, a meeting or focus group. And so the student will be responsible for gathering other voices and finding ways to gather other voices. Um, uh, Museum of Contemporary Art will have a fellow. Um, there's a, something called the Underground Food Collective, which is um, started off sort of as a catering company, but has become a kind of hipster butcher shop uh, um, and restaurant and other things. You have many of them in DC and um, in Brooklyn and everywhere else, but they're interested in open source uh, food safety, uh, hand, creating an open source food safety handbook for people who want to do their own fermenting or want to do their own butchering and sausage making. And so we'll have a graduate student, I can't remember what department, I think geography, but I could be wrong about that, who will be working with them to create this open source project. So really, we're interested in thinking very capaciously about um, where PhDs can contribute. And so I have a lot of ideas uh, about um, what's worked, what hasn't worked, um, what I've learned from the partnerships, uh, um, and I would say with this ethnomusicology student, when we, we met with all the, the partners in the first year, and, and 
certain things that are completely obvious from the outside are not always obvious from the inside. So the, one of the program directors at the library said, what's so great about working with a PhD student, someone who's writing a dissertation, is there's no better training in project management than writing a dissertation. Um, and so, you know, people are often encouraged to go get these project management certificates and do these online courses and do all of these things to learn how to be a project manager. But actually, writing a dissertation is being a project manager. You need to get the attention of your advisor. You need to fulfill all sorts of requirements. You need to, in principle, know everything about something and then know what you don't need to know. Uh, um, and you need to get it in at a certain moment, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I thought that that was an incredibly insightful um, observation. And it speaks to a kind of broader issue that I'm interested in, which is we often don't know how to talk about the things that we do or that we're teaching. And I think maybe Jim Grossman or someone said that. Um, and so I, even in my undergraduate classes, have started incorporating um, some of that so that at the end of a project or at the end of the course, I help my students find a language to talk about what they learned in their course. So yeah, they learned how to read Wordsworth in a particular way, and I think that's really important. And they learned how to deal with something that they might find really difficult. Um, they learned how to deal with problems of interpretation. Um, they learned how to make arguments and write. But if there's a collaborative project, they actually learned how to negotiate all sorts of things having to do with leadership and collaboration because they had a group project and one person wasn't pulling their weight and they had to get that person to do what they were going to do or they had to decide they were just going to let it go. And I mean, all of those things seem kind of really banal and maybe even feel kind of instrumental, but I actually think the more we can do to name that work uh, um, and, and also talk about how we in the humanities um, negotiate um, those, those situations, I think um, the better chance we have of being connected um, to worlds outside of academia. So that's a really long overview of our project and what we've been up to, but it, and it probably gets to some of the things that I, I wanted to say. But, um, but I don't know if we want to just talk about that or I can read slash talk through a little bit of what I prepared. I'm, I'm really very open to see what would be most useful in this context where there are a number of university leaders and people involved with this project. So. Maybe just a quick follow-up. So yeah. for, for these fellows, they uh, they come to Wisconsin with a dissertation project already, or, or are they regular PhDs? They're regular PhD students. So some of the nuts and bolts of the project, um, we correlate them to teaching assistantships, which is to say, it's a 20-hour-a-week appointment. Um, the salary is pretty much like a teaching assistant, although we we give them a stipend to make it a fellowship on top of it. We um, negotiate or identify uh, partners and positions. So we work pretty hard with the partners um, with whom we think we want to partner or the places where we think we want to place a graduate student. We work hard with them to come up with a job description um, that is manageable, that's finite. We don't just want an extra intern person Jack or Jill of all trades in an office. And I learned this in, with a lot of conversations with ACLS also. We want them to have a, work, a clear workspace. We want them to have a clear position. Uh, we don't want them just to be photocopying. 
Um, they need a mentor and an advisor. So we develop a job description, and then we search for actual positions. So we post positions. We don't just post a fellowship in the abstract. Students apply then. Um, let's say we post them in the fall. We have a deadline, let's say in February or so. Students apply for these positions. Um, we then have a faculty committee that reads through the applications and typically chooses the top two, three, four applicants for every position. We then send their um, files over to the host organization and they decide if they look like a good fit. They then interview them. Uh, um, and it has to be a good fit on both counts. Um, and in most cases, it's just an interview. In a couple cases, when usually when the pool is really, really good, um, and it's just really hard to decide, they sometimes will give a small assignment or some other project that will help them to determine is this the person who's going to do the best job for us. Uh, um, and then we offer a kind of structure over the course of the year that supports them. So whether it's check-ins and forms of mentorship. Um, but then they're also in their, in their position. We follow up with the host organization about once a month, and we follow up with the student. But um, they have to have passed their prelim exams and be at the dissertation writing stage, just because the coordination with coursework is too difficult. Um, and we've, we've found there are things that maybe we didn't anticipate about what's challenging about these positions. So we had a fellow. Um, at the Wisconsin Public Television um, working on a project. And moving from the kind of monastic or quasi-monastic work of um, writing a dissertation and the more or less authoritative work of teaching to a space where you're um, communicating with others, but you're not in a position of authority, and you're working collaboratively, but you might be really outside of your comfort zone, and the expectations of you know, what it is to work on a team at a television show are really different than the expectations in the classroom, are really different than the expectations of just writing, not just, but of writing a dissertation or a book or an article or a conference paper. Um, that proved challenging, and learning how to ask a question or learning how to um, be really clear that it's an assignment that you don't get, even if maybe you're more educated than everybody else there, you still don't know how to do something in television. Um, though, those have been really challenging experiences, and I think we've all, we've all learned from them. Um, but I, I would say, yeah, there's more to say about what some of the challenges are, which are just, in a way, the challenges of the, of the workplace. And when you actually get a job in academia, it has its own challenges too. You have no idea of how to do a self-assessment when, you know, I don't, whatever it might be that you're called upon to do, uh, um, or how to manage one kind of budget versus another kind of budget, and just knowing how to work in an academic context, knowing, knowing how to um, do that kind of workplace have that kind of workplace experience, even if you re-enter an academic, even if you enter an academic context, is very useful because um, we're not just in front of a classroom and working in front of our computers. There's a whole other set of negotiations that have to do with working with administrative staff or dealing with parents in the you know off chance that they call it whatever else. There's there are other things that 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 happen. 
um, than just those two parts of the job. And we're not necessarily preparing students for even academic, the full, um, the full context of academic life, I think. So. Yeah, it's been great. I mean, it's been really, it's been really, really interesting. And so people apply from across all these men, I mean, from Yeah, all and I didn't, you know, I realized I didn't bring it because I used it last night. It's, we, it's focused on the humanities and we give preference to students in the humanities. Um, occasionally we've probably, I think we had one sociology grad student, um, who did kind of environmental studies and sociology placed. We had a fellowship at a um, community supported agriculture uh, um, kind of network or advocacy group. And they just wanted to change the way they did their communications and told their story. And so he, his, his own dissertation was more closely tied to that. He had worked with farmers and other things. And so that, that was a natural fit in that case. Um, but primarily history, English. This year we have a student coming from Slavic, um, a couple art historians. Um, yeah. Yeah, so one of the questions, and it's, it often comes from a hostile source, so, but it's not meant that way. It's more, I'm encountering this question, and it's even coming from grad students, is, and, and I think it was expressed last night as well. What is the point of getting a PhD in English, for instance, if you're going to end up going to write blog posts for a website or work for a TV station? You didn't need the PhD in English to do those things. So I'm sure you've encountered this. Yeah. I'm just wondering if you had any good suggestions. Yeah. To yeah. Um, well, there are a couple different answers. Um, I don't know that you absolutely need a PhD in English to teach in certain liberal, liberal arts contexts. To do anything, maybe. <laughs> so, um, so on the one hand, and on the other, so I mean, I've got two answers, and they're totally opposed, which is, on the one hand, there are a number of things that we were convinced you need a PhD to do, but I don't know that you, and historically, um, you haven't needed that. And on the other hand, um, having an advanced graduate degree, um, Undertaking the project of writing a dissertation, and I'm still a dissertation person, not everybody is a dissertation. And this project, the Connected Academics Project, raises this question, I think, of you know, what's the role of the dissertation. I'm pretty interested in dissertations um, still, and I think that there's a lot of value to dissertations. Um, and other things too, but I think there's value to dissertations. And I think Rosemary said last night, um, and this I've said and I, I agree with, it doesn't need to be a nine-year PhD. It can be a five-year PhD where you're really working on your PhD and not doing 60 other things. Um, and you'd say this is doing 60 other things, but this is, to me, still part of working on the PhD. Um, but I digress. So one of them is do we always need a PhD to do the things that we've said we've needed a PhD to do? On the other hand, doesn't having a PhD um, give you a set of resources that you wouldn't otherwise have to do all of these things, right? So um, a much deeper knowledge of, um, of, of certain kinds of fields, a much deeper commitment to what research is or um, what, um, I, I even just leave it at that, a much deeper commitment to, to, to research. And so, um, I also think that 
I think I even said this last night, that um, I've almost flipped the conversation around, which is I think many students want to get PhDs and they want to do something else. Um, and I don't know if that's true for any of you, but many students start off and then they look and they say, I want to decide where I want to live, first of all. That's usually the first thing is, you know, I don't want to be beholden to this structure. I, I maybe would find it much more satisfying to write blog posts than to teach four or six courses outside of my field in a given semester, which is what a lot of students with PhDs end up doing, and in some cases at three different universities. So I don't see a situation in which um, we're, I don't see a situation in which it's kind of a zero sum. I actually see that um, many students want to communicate more broadly, and a PhD can help them communicate more broadly or engage more capaciously in their, in their worlds. Uh, um, so I, I see them as actually going together. I think that your world can be bigger because you've gotten a PhD. It can be richer because you've gotten a PhD, and that there are ways that we can um, carry that all the way through and not just say, this is the only place you can end up. This is your, this is your target. But this is, I think maybe it was Jim Grossman or someone who's the um, executive director of the American Historical Association said yesterday something like, the PhD isn't just a vocational degree. Like we've been creating the PhD as a vocational degree. Why isn't it a liberal, a more liberal degree? And I think those of you who've looked at political science, sociology, economics, um, and the sciences, that there are many, many, many more career options in all of those fields than we've recognized. They've existed in history and literature, but we haven't recognized them in history and literature. And so when you think about people going to work in this, I mean here in particular, people going to work in the State Department, um, why should it only be political scientists that go to work in the State Department with their PhDs? Why can't it be historians or, or literature scholars with a strong area studies background? Who, um, why can't a PhD in African literature go work in the State Department? Why does it have to be a political scientist? And I think that that's, um, those are PhD warranting positions too. So, uh, um, and you might end up having to write blog posts in the State Department, you know, <laughs> the world we live in. So. You, I think you had a question. Yeah, I had a couple of questions. And your, uh, your institute sounds fascinating and a really wonderful model, I think, for, uh, to think with. Um, but I want to ask some nuts and bolts yeah. questions, process questions. First of all, um, now having been put unwillingly on the, on the administrative track, um, and one of the things that I have to start thinking about um, is uh, start to finish times for dissertations. Now, how have you found that this particular program impacts finishing times? So, because I would think, so let me just say, um, uh, I would think that there's, you know, there's an, a whole learning curve to be mastered, being put out in the field in a, yeah. in a new environment. Um, and then, so you've got a learning curve, uh, you're, supposedly uh, then completing a meaningful project. And meanwhile, you've left your dissertation aside, and then there's always some, a lot of time that it takes to sort of think your way back into a project after you've left it aside. So, so 
We haven't, and we haven't tracked it very closely, yeah. but we, and our sample's still pretty small, yeah. right? Um, but we have not seen a significant difference in terms of time to degree. Yeah. Um, and here are a couple thoughts, is I actually think that um, it's more effective to do this academic year than summer. So because the students still, if, if, the, if it can be combined with a summer fellowship, mm -hmm. having that intense summer period and then to continue having, because once the semester's in, underway, if you're TAing, um, it's often the case that TAing takes more time because it's kind of arbitrary how much time you spend grading a paper or how much time you spend preparing for a section. Sometimes, and, and then, you know, it doesn't stop, it keeps, it keeps going. So, so again, I don't see it as kind of zero sum. If we're talking about what happens in the middle period when students are going to be TAing or they're going to be a research assistant or they're going to, because most, I don't know how it is here, but we typically all have one dissertation fellowship year, not two. Some students will get an outside something or come in with a Javits and they'll be able to have a couple of dissertation years. But in our case, we typically have one, in the best case scenario, typically one dissertation year and then your TA. Yeah, exactly. One, one writing research fellowship where you're not teaching. So I see this as a substitute for TA, not a substitute for the fellowship. And when TA, and when we know how much time being a TA takes. Now, being a research assistant is really variable because some people ask for a lot and some people ask for very little. And so, but if you think about it in relationship to the other kind of professional training that we're giving graduate students, they're already working. Um, so by giving them another kind of work experience, we're also opening up another door. So that's one thing. Um, the other thing, and I said this yesterday that I've been really interested and surprised by is, so this year, um, I, I, I know of two of our fellows who went on the job market in English. And um, one of them got a ton of interviews and ended up just for various reasons not landing a job, but did really well kind of in general, you know, high end, really nice interviews, uh, job visit, campus visits. And one of them ended up getting a position, um, a tenure track position. Um, so, and if I, I don't know about the art, I don't know about the students who are in history and art history, but these are the students I knew in English. Uh, one of them is writing a dissertation on the history of radio and poetry, and one of them is writing a dissertation on um, romantic and Victorian notions of the cosmos and the world and, and contemporary discussions of world literature. So, deeply academic project, just to kind of situate them again. Uh, um, in both cases, the things that people um, in the interview setting were most interested in talking about was their fellowship experience. And here's why I think that's the case, because I, I talked with them about it and I thought about it and I was really surprised, because I always thought, here's the on-ramp to a different, I mean, kind of off-ramp from academia, on-ramp to a different, um, a different world. And they were both really, really good. And they, you know, could have gotten jobs in a lot of different sectors. But here's why I think it's not just the on-ramp to the alt-ac world, but also what's going to transform um, universities themselves, is that, I'll be a little hyperbolic and say, every university is facing an enrollment question with the humanities. 
um, every university is called upon to articulate the value of a BA in the humanities. So whether you're Harvard who went through this whole study, or you're Northern Illinois, or you're a small liberal arts college, you still need to articulate, you still need to articulate the value of what, of what you do. And who is better positioned to do that than someone who both has a PhD and has experience outside of the university and can say, this is how studying literature helped me to work at a startup. So one of the fellows was actually a fellow at the startup that our former fellow um, had started. So, um, and she was doing, working on their digital platform and fundraising, I mean, really big project. Like She understood and she could talk about why studying literature was really good for other careers and could embed that in the undergraduate classroom, which is really where this ultimately has to start and get worked out is, you know, why should a student study literature history rather than business and engineering? Um, and I think we understand and we've developed a set of arguments for why that's the case. Um, but to imagine a new um, cohort of junior faculty of incoming assistant professors who are able to actually teach that and recognize that from day one. Um, most of us have come to this later in our careers. It's something we're thinking about kind of mid or late way through what we're doing. And it's not something that we've necessarily done. But to start to imagine a new cohort of academics who have broken down those barriers is what I think will kind of save humanities departments at some level. So it's not exactly to answer your question about time to degree, but if time to degree is tied to job market, is tied to what happens for academics, I actually think that, and I had no idea this, like I completely learned this from the, the job market experience, that this is what's going to set students apart on the job market and it's potentially what can change um, the kind of crisis mode in, in humanities and romance. Um, could I just ask a follow-up and you know, to some extent it makes you who've uh, answered it uh, in your response, but um, what, what other than the stories that you've just told about these students on the job market, what has the student response been? Right. What have they, where have they identified the strengths and or, and or weaknesses? So I think that there's a learning curve. There's definitely a learning curve. So one of the things that we learned, and this is why some places have tried to do this as a kind of more of a summer program, why we've learned that students really need the year uh -huh. is that it does take almost the first semester to figure out the organization, figure out the job, figure out who you are in this other space. So that's one thing, is that time matters. Um, and that's where so much of the learning takes place and the uncertainty and the developing of, of a kind of comfort. Um, so um, other responses, I think that um, challenges are, we have some very clear hierarchies and relationships within um, the university. And our best students figure out how to navigate those extremely well, right? You know who's important in a department, you know the role of an advisor, you know how to work with whoever you're a TA for. That is just blasted when you move outside of the university, that where power lies and, um, or when you move outside of the department, I should say. So I think that that, that has been challenging for students. Exciting when they've succeeded, 
Um, I think some students do better in these contexts than others. I think some students really thrive and find their passion uh, um, and really face the big questions like, I find this so much more interesting than being by myself writing. So many students find that they're much more social beings than their dissertation makes possible or than traditional academic life makes possible. And, and that, that I think has been one of the um, insights. I think, um, so students have contributed to organizations in powerful ways. So we had one fellow from the history department. He uh, worked on Japanese history, if I remember correctly. And the, he had a fellowship at the University Foundation, which is the development advancement fundraising arm of the university. And um, he was, they were starting a new campaign and they had hired him to really think about communicating with the history department and communicating with faculty about development. Um, but what he ended up discovering is that the work that had been done with Asian alumni, alumni who had gone back to Asia, was so minimal and they never focused on it. And he, I don't know if he ultimately got hired to do it or not, but he basically created a position at the foundation um, for Asian relations, basically. So that was a kind of insight where someone from outside with another field of expertise um, was able to recognize this. Did he need the PhD to do it? Maybe, because a PhD is expertise, it is experience, it is, I mean, part of what a PhD does is also make you an expert and allows you, it, it, it is a voice-giving mechanism. So, um, I'm trying to think of other, I think it's hard. I mean, I think the other thing to say is that it's often very hard for students. Um, and we have, We'd have a part to full-time staff member who's overseeing this and other public humanities projects. And I would say that's the other really important thing is, yeah. is staffing it. And who's, they're advocating, they're translating, they're in the weeds, they're big picture. I mean, they have to do all of that. And we've had different people in, in that position. It's been interesting to see how, um, so one person we had in that position came out of a museum background. And that was really useful because, and then he, he got such a good job. He left us to go be the executive director of the Stax Museum. So he then got this great, great job himself, but he didn't have a PhD, uh, um, but he understood the other side very, very well. And he just could talk them through. So having, having the intermediary, who's not me, um, but someone who, who's worked outside of academia in a more direct way, and he had, he had worked at the um, Veterans Museum at the, and at the Milwaukee Historical Society. Um, so he really understood this kind of cultural work that involves publics, involves ideas, involves workplace dynamics. And that, I think, is one of the key things to make any of this work is the staff. The staff's the most important, I think. I have a couple questions. And first of all, thank you for, for myself. This is, we, a lot of us have been reading about these different humanities centers and programs, but to actually hear somebody who's had such a, yeah. you know, a longevity, that great, from a lot of different perspectives, it looks like it's, it's just really very exciting and also really helpful. I had one nuts and bolts yeah. question and one more muse question. My first nuts and bolts question is, any tips on or any advisement and how you secure 
how your university secured the partners that, you know, kind of a starting, starting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then my second, and so you can take these in any order you want. My second question was, I just love to hear more of your reflections. I'm fascinated, but I'm not yet putting everything together, how the dissertations don't necessarily align with mm -hmm. the uh, focus of the fellowship. So I'd love to hear more on, you know, the challenges to that and also the yeah. benefits of that. Yeah. So um, the first one, in terms of how we selected and um, secured the partners, a lot of it has to do with um, personal networks. So, um, or, and, or I should say, or institutional networks. So the Center for the Humanities had partnered with various of these organizations over the years. So the to the best of our knowledge, we often will send people who come to give our major lectures over to the radio station. We wanted to think, how can we um, have a stronger relationship? And we ended up parlaying that uh, graduate student fellow position into an ACLS public fellow position. So then there was a two-year postdoc that was located there. So, um, so some of these are existing institutional relationships, but some of them are people you know. And I think it's actually worth um, demonstrating to graduate students, to our colleagues, to administrators, that our lives don't just exist in the university. That um, when you take your kid to their soccer game and you talk to the other parents and one of the parents runs a magazine or your neighbor that you run into when you're walking the dog happens to work at the university hospital on their ethics side and has a philosophy background even if their position um, is outside of what we would conventionally call the humanity. So I think if we do a kind of work of self-assessment, um, there are all sorts of connections that, that we have that we don't often connect the dots between. And so a lot of the work was just dot connecting. And I should say, just about everyone we've spoken to has been so excited. And we heard this last night with the woman from the National Immigration Law Center, where like, it's often the case that bringing a new, really smart, really well-trained, and often differently trained person into an organization is the game changer. That just livens things up. It makes things possible. So the way that I frame it when I meet with people is, what's the project you've wanted to do that you've never had someone be able to do? Can we find you that person? Could it be done in nine months or a year? Um, so, you know, I would never in a million years have thought, well, what the library wants to do is think about circulating local music and creating a digital platform for that. Like, that was so not on my radar, right? Um, but that's what they wanted to do. And they're like, we need, to, we need someone who can do research into copyright law to understand what it would take. And they thought they wanted a law student and it ended up being a music historian. And so everyone learned. There's always an element of surprise. But connecting the dots, really thinking about your internal networks. And there's some places where I haven't quite been able to get it to work. So, I mean, I, I'm, you know, kind of, I like to knock on doors. I like, I like to meet with people. I like to, to, to imagine what could be possible and what would a world look like in which more scholars who have really thought about what it is to inhabit society in a complex way that's not just a direct path, but with some resistance or um, some, a lot of creativity, what would it look like if they were running the show? Um, and if we could help them uh, run these organizations. So one place where I've 
tried and I, I haven't been able quite to work it out um, is the American Girl Company, if you know the dolls. So they're based in Madison or just outside of Madison. And because they have an existing internship program and because they wouldn't be directly paying them through their resources, the student would still be um, paid through the university. We've never been able to figure out the kind of legal component of it, but they do enormous amounts of historical research and it's often the case that graduate students are working for them, writing novels and narratives and catalog copy and designing clothes. I mean, so, so there's, right, it's a great, so, so those are the kinds of things where I don't think anything's off limits. Um, and, and I think that would be the other way to put it. Is there's some natural fits, the kind of natural cultural organization fits, but, but I don't think anything's off, off limits. And some projects will be more oriented towards social justice, and some projects will be kind of more oriented towards um, kind of corporate careers, and some will be more cultural, and I think there's room for all of those, that I don't think it's either, either or. Uh, um, but now I've completely forgotten your second question. That's okay. Uh, uh, can I just ask one yeah. quick follow-up on that? Have, you, have any studies been done um, and actually then seeing that this opens up more jobs for PhD students in the publics? We, not that I know of. I believe they do. I mean, I, I, yeah. this is totally intuitive, which is I think that one of the things we're doing is educating employers to see that PhD student, like you think you need an MBA to do X job, but do you need an MBA or could a PhD in history actually do this job just as well and just as creatively? And I think, you know, it'd be interesting to start to look at the investment banks and the consulting companies um, and kind of, or management consultancies and to really start to see because that, that's where some of this would change. And now one of the challenges is many of our students are allergic to those. Um, and many of us are allergic to some of those positions. So there really is a tension between, you know, do we want PhDs to be feeders, you know, Wall Street feeders, um, which in some cases they already are. Um, well, our undergraduate humanities students very often are. Exactly. I'm sure they are, absolutely. There's a clear pipeline. They all, you know, whatever, you know, when I was an uh, undergrad, it was management consulting or um, whatever the pipeline is, you know, going to work at various funds on Wall Street and, and, um, and investment companies. I don't think it's a bad thing. I mean, I guess that, that would be my position. And I think many of my, my, my you know, smartest and most engaging graduate students would totally disagree with me and you know I've just you know swallowed the neoliberal pill etc but uh, um, but I I actually think that the more conditions of possibility for um, undergraduates and graduate students in the humanities the better and that um, if we do our job well if if and by that I mean if the one thing we can do as professors, as advocates, is think about the humanities as permitting a world and creating a world in which it's, it's possible to inhabit difficulty for very long periods of time, to not feel like what we have to do is resolve things, not have the right um, and conclusive and settled answer, but live in uncertainty and difficulty. Um, I think we want more of that in a lot of different spaces. And, 
And we know that if you become an investment banker, you might also be one of the most important supporters of the arts that our country has. Um, and so they're, they're, they're not opposed to each other. Uh, um, but if we can create, or the biggest supporters of universities, right? Um, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't see the opposition as being productive. I think we, we can push, but I don't think it being, it's the most productive opposition. Yeah, remind me. Oh, the dissertation, the relation between the dissertation. So we've been running, far before we did this, we did this um, smaller project where we gave grants to, um, to graduate students to develop uh, basically like a small nonprofit in collaboration with an existing community organization. Um, we'd give them a couple thousand dollars and they do some kind of project that we saw as being related to their dissertation or being related to their expertise. So um, one of the earlier projects was a student who was writing on early modern, you'll see where this is going, writing on early modern drama um, and kind of difference in diversity in some way in early modern drama, um, also related to history of science. I, I don't remember the exact project because it was at least 10 years ago now. Um, but what she decided to do for her project, what she wanted to do was start a zine, this is before online zines, they're actually paper, um, start a zine with middle school students about science, primarily for middle school students um, who are immigrants or kind of in a kind of multicultural setting. Now, it had nothing to do with early modern literature, but what interested her in early modern literature wasn't early modern literature. What interested her in early modern literature was this problem that she was actually playing out in another space. And I think the more ways that we understand why we're interested in the research we do and our students understand why they're interested in the research we do, the more visible the connections are. So the problem, and I, my students do this all the time and when they, I you know, teach a seminar and they go around and introduce themselves, they say, I'm a romanticist, I'm an early modernist, I work on ex-poet, but it might be that you work on ex-poet because you're absolutely passionate about ex-poet, but you're also passionate about a set of ideas that have to do with the relation between aesthetics and politics or have to do with um, questions of representation um, or economic inequality. There are so many ways of describing what you do. And if we think about the dissertation as being just belonging to a certain period and a certain set of texts, we usually miss what really drove the person to write our dissertation. And so if we can see that that drive can have many different manifestations. And maybe the student's really interested in early modern, but maybe they were interested in early modern because they had this great professor who happened to teach early modern or, or some other experience that it's not always that period or that topic, but it's the big question. And I think that we've gotten away from big questions. And this is one place, and I think there are others, where we can get back to big questions and making, and I mean, this is what you're doing, connected academics, is making clear connections. Um, so that's the, that's, the relation's there, it's just just beneath the surface or somewhere else. Yeah. So, um, to move to, um, back to the pragmatic question, we're interested in the idea of a certificate in public humanities, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the genesis of that yeah. and the market for that and how that's working. So um, we too, I too was interested in the certificate and 
um, had the idea that as part of this project, um, we wanted there to be an academic, an academic component. And the structure of the certificate is pretty flexible for us. Uh, um, I looked very closely at the Simpson Center certificate. I don't know if I think you've probably been in touch with Kathy Woodward um, and looked at her certificate. So, um, I mean, I should say both with the fellows program and the certificate, I'm a big fan of seeing what other people are doing. I don't think you have to invent everything. I think if other people have done something and, and they've figured out how to do it, that you have to create local tweaks and um, kind of understand your community. But there's no reason why, if they've figured something out, that you can't borrow in sight. So that's, yeah. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what it's, you know, pros and cons are. So um, one of the key pieces for us is a core course. And one of the key challenges is where to locate that core course. Um, so I started offering the core course before it had a number. I, I, I offered it, and for various reasons, the English department at that moment didn't want it, which was my home department. And you might know why an English department wouldn't want it or not. Um, so I happened to also be affiliated with Complit, and they were combining with the um, program in folklore studies and already had a kind of interest in articulating a public humanities mission. So I ended up locating it first in Complit. It's very hard. Um, and then, so I, one, I have offered it in Complit, I've offered it in, yeah, I've actually offered it in three different ways. Once in Complit, once we then developed an independent, we've now developed an independent course um, number for it, and rather than it being correlated directly to the Humanities Center, which doesn't have its own, its own course numbers, it's an interdisciplinary liberal arts or liberal, I, Interdis inter is what it is. Um, and there are very few other courses in that category. There's a kind of sophomore level career course and there's an internship course. This might be the only graduate, one of the very few graduate courses in this category. Um, and then this year I offered it in English. So when I offered it through Comp Lit, although we broadcasted it more or less widely, it was still 75% students in the complete department who took the course. When I offered it in interdisciplinary studies, um, although we broadcasted it rather widely, the way in was very complicated, and there were like three students who took the course. And then when I offered it this year, both because it was the third time and because it was through English, um, there were 16 students, which I think is a good number. Once you get that much bigger in a grad seminar, it's kind of hard to do a lot. Um, so there are 16 students from at least four different departments. So um, mostly from English, but you, we still have the other departments being represented. So is that because the certificate is off the ground? Is that because departments are still what's leading the way in terms of enrollments? So that's one challenge, is where you locate so the certificate. So students would also be getting the certificate? They don't have to. So this is just for the course. So, but it's a feeder. Once you, and I would say of the students who took the course, some of them took it because they wanted to do romanticism, and I'm a romanticist, and although I wasn't teaching romanticism, it's a way to you know, work with faculty in the field or other, other reasons they were encouraged to take it. Um, so some of the most skeptical, and I taught a lot of theory and other things, so even if you're not explicitly interested in a kind of practice, you could still read Adorno and Said and Derrida in this, in this world, Judith Butler. Um, 
But the students who I think were most resistant actually got kind of excited about the project. So it worked out that it wasn't just this purely self-selecting group that it had this other armature. So first point is I think deciding where you want to teach the core course is if, if you have a core course, I think you do need something that is kind of foundational and, and cohort building. Um, I think the things that people got really excited about were classroom visits and field trips. That's always the thing that um, just is, is transformative for students. So we visited the library or we had someone from public radio come. Um, we had speakers come and I, Divide, I've designed the course so that they have to read a lot of theory. They also have to do certain kinds of exercises. They write an op-ed. They um, have to imagine a project and really kind of break it down. Who would you collaborate with? What skill don't you have that you, you wish you had? And then their final project can be either kind of a long-form essay that remediates something that they've already, I'm, I mean, I tend to be pretty textual still, so there's one or two digital projects, but I'm pretty textual. So a project that um, transforms a seminar paper or your dissertation, some of them are first years, some of them it was a master's thesis or even an undergraduate project um, for a different audience, a more public audience. Mm -hmm. um, others of them are more of a project um, so there's a project where a student wants to read the Odyssey with vets and then think about, and, and now is thinking, oh, could I apply for an NEH because you know, Bro Adams has this um, real focus on thinking about vets and military and so could she do something bigger? Could it be tied to ROTC on campus? And could you bring together vets and ROTC students around? And she's a classics major. Uh, or PhD in classics, could you bring them around the Odyssey and about a kind of shared experience of reading. Um, so, so that's one thing. Then the middle piece is very open-ended. We generate a list of courses that we think would be productive from around the university. We contact the departments or faculty asking that if a student is interested, can you make sure that there's room available in the course. So it could be in the business school, it could be in human ecology, it could be um, just it could be a public history course, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then there's some kind of those are all they're mostly grad courses. Um, and then there's a, some kind of culminating project. Now, this gets back to the time to degree question. Um, so. I'm a fan of things doubling up. I don't think that we should have everything be mutually exclusive. I think it's more interesting and more productive when we can double double things up. So, um, and you know, there's some accreditation issues and some counting issues around this stuff. But I think that you could. So one capstone could be one of these fellowships. So it doesn't mean that you have to write a dissertation, do a capstone, get a fellowship. They could all be part of the same. Um, or a portfolio approach to different projects that you've done in, in various places. So I want it to be eye-opening and productive for students, but I also don't want it to be such a high bar that like we just added a year onto your, onto your PhD. So is your market for this simply students who are already in grad programs? 
At the moment, yes. But I think that um, these are, and we haven't done a lot on this front, and we should do more, but it is a recruitment tool. Um, I mean, it's definitely a recruitment tool to say, what's going to distinguish Georgetown? What's going to distinguish Wisconsin from other PhDs right now is this, op this opportunity. And I think that um, the real challenge for us, and I think that it's great that you're all here, is um, really working with the departments, at, at working with all the DGS, our directors of graduate study, working with the chairs. Um, and we've done that with history a bit, we've done it with English a bit, um, to say this is something that can help you. That this isn't something, this isn't in competition, this isn't just an add-on, but can this be useful to you as you're recruiting students in the contemporary academic marketplace? So you were talking about what's out of the room. You were talking about the public humanities course you're teaching. Yes. The core course. Of the exactly. Course. Yeah. And the certificate, because you're thinking of a certificate. So what's your certificate that you're thinking about? Well, we have a few different things in play. One is an um, interdisciplinary PhD in humanities and public humanities um, located in the grad school. That's great. And uh, to support that, an accompanying uh, certificate in public humanities and or an MA in public humanities. Um, one of the issues has been, and I think will continue to be getting the departments to sign on to this, so very overworked departments feeling like they can't be stretched any further. But if, I mean, Georgia and I were talking about this when we were writing a document to use working with the departments. I mean, I, I think it does help them distinguish. It will help them recruit students. It will help their students get positions. So, you know, for all those reasons, it brings something to the department. So that reminded me. So there's one or two other. I don't know if they're oddities or not at Wisconsin that made it easier to think about. One is that graduate students are typically, I think this changed slightly while we were midstream, but culturally it hasn't changed. Graduate students typically have a minor. So although there are, strangely enough, our un, we don't have undergraduate minors as such, but we do have graduate student minors. Uh, we have undergraduate certificates. So what that means is that um, undergraduate, our, our graduate students are already thinking about what the other thing is. And some of them are, kind of already predetermined, um, and they might be tied to other departments. Um, you know, it could be you're getting a PhD in English and you have a creative writing minor. Um, but we also have um, a set of centers um, and other zones that have thought about minors. So religious studies would be a minor. Um, or we have a center for culture, um, human, um, culture, history, and environment. And they ha have an existing certificate program. We have a Center for Visual Cultures, and they have a certificate program. So we weren't doing this in a vacuum. We were doing this within a culture where students are already expected to think about their work in an interdisciplinary or multiple way. And that helped a lot. Um, and, and I guess the disadvantage is it meant we had to do less work with the departments to bring them on because there was already this culture of certificates and it, it probably would have been helpful for us to have done even more of the work that you're doing um, to have it more clearly, clearly embedded. But um, that, I think the fact of these existing certificates and the expectation of doing a minor and thinking outside um, 
made a, a bit of a difference for us. It made it a little, just the, the way in was a little easier. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Um, so. To get back to the Humanities Center idea and Public Humanities Center, how are you conceptualizing the, like the public in that Public Humanities? Because one thing we've talked about in work and parties on the um, University Task Force and the Humanities Center um, is, at least from my perspective, to just plop a typical research Humanities Center down at Georgetown doesn't really make any sense. And I think we've had a discussion on that committee as well. Um, to kind of rethink the kinds of things that the Humanities Center might do. And at um, MLA, we were talking about the difference between an outreach model and an in-reach model. Mm-hmm. So an in-reach model being something that we're trying to bring humanities think, or maybe that mm-hmm. ability to inhabit difficulty um, into organizations, right? As well as the typical bring humanities to the schools, Shakespeare in the Park. Yeah, so yeah, exactly. How are you thinking about that? Um, I try to do it all, I guess. Um, we try to do it all and find ways that they feed each other. Um, so it's funny, um, there are some people from another university who came, who were thinking about building a humanities center and came to talk with us day before yesterday. And um, they're kind of going to a set of different humanities centers around the country. And, um, and so I think the humanities center has a lot of value to faculty. Um, and you know, you're located in an incredibly vibrant city where there are many museums. So, you, and and I mean, there's the Smithsonian. There's so much other stuff happening here. So, one question is, what does a Georgetown Humanities Center, Public Humanities Center, have to contribute in this context? And I think that that's work that would be useful to do. And is it about, is it is it the collaborations? Uh, um, is it specifically about the university? Does the university need you in ways, or need a humanity center in ways, uh, or for something that's not being satisfied by a Smithsonian or any of these other projects? And I think that the answer to that question is probably really different than it is in Madison. So um, at some level, there, and you know, the challenge of Madison is you have this enormous university with an ag school and a nursing school and engineering and medical school um, and it's easy for the humanities to get it could be easy for the humanities to be drowned out or for their um, for them not on campus to have a lot of visibility and so one of the things that I think a humanities center is able to do is give um, intense visibility to work that's happening on campus for campus and then for the outside um, so there's a kind of prestige building component to it. Is that an issue at, at Georgetown? Is that something that um, one would need to think about? Um, I think that um, in terms of what our public, so our public, when we think about outreach and inreach, we really do all of these things. So we've done projects that collaborate with the sciences, and we've really tried to do which is both outreach and in reach um, in some ways. We try to locate events not only on campus, but also in museums and like-minded places, um, almost like a pop-up or like we're kind of inhabiting, those are spaces that um, we can inhabit in, in, in particular ways. Uh, um, and we try to broaden 
um, the conception of really what the humanities are and where they live. I mean, I think that's a lot of what we can do and find ways to bring that back to the experience of students and bring that back to the experience of faculty. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I think that, I, I do think that humanity centers really are so, such local operations, that they look so different. I mean, there are lots of similarities. You know, lots of us have lunch talks or other kinds of series, but there's also something incredibly local about what the needs are and what the possibilities are. So any kind of sense of, you know, what are, what are the assets and where the, where the, you know, where, where, where are you needed? Are you needed in relationship to the deans or in relation to the president of the university to, to um, create visibility on campus? Um, and are you needed for training? Are you, needing in, are you needed in relation to government? I mean, there's so many ways to, um, to think about needs. I think that's really helpful. So we're almost out of time. Is there one it's my question? Fault. Or, and I want to whisk her back over to the ACLS. Yeah. From the student perspective, yeah. I, so I came back to school after a career as a journalist. Or I'm still a journalist, but anyway, so uh -huh. I sort of have a foot in each world. So for me, the, it's, I'm inverting in a way the process you're talking about where a student might come do a PhD mm -hmm. in the humanities and then go on to work in radio or print or digital, yep. any of the things that I've done. So I'm in a way doing it, and I did it for a purely, a purely pure reason, it was just because I wanted to, so that made everyone in my life think I was insane, um, which perhaps I am. Um, so, but my question is, and as I've talked to during these two years, talked to my, my you know, 22 and 26 year old colleagues in the department, um, it's a little bit sort of the question Catherine says she's often asked, and I, I too am not asking it in a hostile way because I'm. Why would you get uh, the PhD? Well, <laughs> but I'm asking it a little bit in a yeah. different way, um, which is, are there really the, the jobs out there? This is also a little bit of a, a different phrasing of the question Rebecca asked, but I'm asking because the two examples you gave, which were great, were the the sort of star students who then use their their externships to get academic jobs. But as far as the whole alt app conversation. And I've, I've asked this maybe at other events, um, so sorry if I'm repeating what people have heard, but um, I'm very interested in, and I, I think this would be a great project for one of your students, what, you know, what's the data on the jobs that are out there? Because the, there was one talk I think someone gave at a, an event early in the year about you know, public, every state has um, an arts council, has a humanities society, there are museums. So, but my, and then there's public radio or, you know, but, at the State Department, you know, all these, this world that, you know, I know all these worlds. My question is, and I don't expect you to know a number, what, mm -hmm. how many jobs are out there. Yeah, yeah. I guess my question is, as I'm listening, I want there to be strong PhD programs in the humanities, because I'm a proponent of the humanities. My, my capstone project is, you know, why read books? I mean, why read literature? So, so I'm very interested in this question, but not only would I love to know the number of jobs out there, non-academic jobs, if it's even possible to quantify that. But also, I guess my question is for Georgetown, in thinking about a possible humanities center or, or humanities PhD, or for you, is, it, is the incentive or the motivating force to prevent humanities PhD student drop-off? Is it to recruit new students? Or is it to provide alternative career paths 
since the academic job market is shrinking, like what is yes. I guess yes, 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 yes. <laughs> I can get to this question of what a very non-humanities term opportunity costs. Yeah, yeah. For the 22 and 26-year-old colleagues, I mean, there's one first year I talked to who was great. She actually came from publishing. She didn't come right from undergraduate, right? She worked at publishing. She hated book publishing right. in New York. She hated it. She saw the salaries were horrible and it was right. sexist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And anyway, even with the wages, you know, there's not like a lot of money out there. So she's determined. She said, I want to get a PhD. She's coming to you know, and I want to go on the academic job market. And I said, well, what about the fact that, you know, there aren't very many jobs? I don't care. I'm going to do it. Mm -hmm. And I thought, God, I so hope she doesn't end up knocking on the door of those New York publishers in 10 years. You know, um, so that opportunity cost is, sorry, it's just, yeah, yeah. You know, the question is why, and not so much, I guess it's a dual thing. Are there the jobs out there? And then what are they giving up by not going on the job market to pay off their student debt? But what were you going to say, Catherine? I was just um, very much reminded of, I think, what the AHA director said last night. And Rosemary Field also said 100% of PhDs in the humanities are employed five years after. And it, uh, his, the AHA director said, well, he said they couldn't locate 2%, right? But 98% are located and they are employed, and it's not baristas. So I think the jobs are out there, but I've also the MLA is working on this project already. Great. Yeah. Exactly, and so is AHA has their own. They they realize you know we just haven't been tracking this, but you know the precarious jobs are the adjunct jobs, yeah. like the low paying, difficult conditions, especially when you're in a metropolitan area and you're teaching at four different universities and you're making a couple thousand dollars a course. I mean those. Those are the really bad jobs. Right, I'm not even thinking of those jobs because to me, those are still But you made a couple points, and um, one of them is right, it's a joke to say, oh, well, there are lots of jobs in public radio right now, right? Because, <laughs> like, what's harder than getting an academic job is getting a job in public radio. So, especially the job that people really want, which is, you know, doing some fabulous idea Z show. So, so, or in a museum, um, and you know, it's not like those are high paying. So your point is very, very well taken, which is why one of the things that I've been thinking about from the onset and have been um, undertaking in various ways is that this is not just public sector, it's also private sector. And there are private sector jobs. Um, and what is the training for private sector jobs? And what is the work of private sector jobs? And um, is it useful to create spaces in which, and this goes back to things like consulting, it's PhDs who are able to consult and sometimes really love that work. And it is work that having become an expert, um, et cetera, et cetera, um, is, a real, is a real position. Why shouldn't it be a PhD in English or history? Why does it have to be an MBA uh, um, who's, who's doing that work? There's a certain kind of problem solving and analysis that anyone who spend enormous amounts of time thinking about literature is really excellent at. And I don't think that we've done enough yet to be able to art articulate that kind of analytic work to these other kinds of positions. So when we're thinking kind of culture industry jobs, the publishing, certain kinds of journalism, like we're all on the same boat. Um, but, but when it comes to looking outside of the, and, and, and I should say, we should, we're also opening up that door because there are some jobs in those areas. 
Um, and those jobs are changing, what they are changing. Are they more digital? Um, how has the podcasting world really changed? And how has um, certain kind of online writing communities changed? How, how are there more hybrid positions? Um, there are digital publishing positions, so it's not the old publishing jobs that we knew about, but there are these other ventures that are exciting um, and where people really want someone who can deal with difficulty, deal with complexity, not just um, solve problems in the most efficient way, but in um, the best and most open-ended way and not, not um, be kind of run over by them. But, you know, my husband was a journalist. I'll, you know, be anecdotal. He was a journalist and then he went and got a PhD in, in political science. And for him, he really wanted the experience of, um, of doing work with a kind of depth and consistency that, you know, jumping from country to country um, over the course of a week or a month didn't allow him as a journalist. Um, and he ended up in an academic uh, position, but his work in academia, I, I, I am convinced, is totally informed by his prior life as a journalist. And so he's able, I mean, he just wrote a book um, with uh, the Holocaust Museum down the street and um, basically for the State Department about genocide and genocide prevention that I'm sure had he not been a journalist, never would have happened in precisely the same way. So. They're, they're not, there's not just a dichotomy, I think. There are lots of ways of saying, okay, you've got a background in journalism. How is that gonna transform and how is that already transforming the kind of academic that you are? Or the student in publishing, um, you know, she might be working in publishing, but in a radically different way than she would have had she not gone the PhD route. So that's how I would think so, about it. So let me thank you there because we are completely out of time and we need to get back over. But this has been amazing. Well, I'm so glad that we have it on video. Good. And I'm. I'm glad to stay in touch also. So as your project develops, if you want to have another conversation or check in, I, I, you know, excited to hear more about what what emerges. So. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Thanks.